going on, Bridgeway? Hey, everybody. Super excited to be here. Did y'all have a good Thanksgiving? Yep. I know some of y'all in here that probably are in the same boat as I am. We need to do a little repenting for the overindulgence of banana pudding. Amen. Maybe it's just me, but I, I don't think I'm alone in this. If we haven't met before, my name is Judah. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm just super excited to get to sharing God's word with you. I'm excited about it. And because some of us are just meeting, I want to let you know that I, like you, am a Christian still in process. God is, is still working on some things in me. And one of the things that God has been dealing with me on a lot is my patience. I am not a patient person simply because I, I don't like waiting. Not a fan of waiting. And so just kind of as a rule of life, I don't do lines. I just don't do them. It's just a rule of mine. I don't do lines. I will spend 85 extra dollars to get the fast pass over at Six Flags to keep from having to wait in line with your little boys and girls because I don't like waiting. I, I'm the type of person that will stay in the office here at Bridgeway two hours after everybody else has gone home for the day, not because I have some extraordinary work ethic, but because I don't want to sit in traffic. I don't like waiting. It's not my thing. It never really has been my thing. And for me, lines and waiting are usually an indicator that somebody didn't do what they were supposed to do. Somewhere along the line, somebody messed up. For example, when I go to the grocery store, that will remain nameless. And it's Saturday, which is the day that all 4,678 people in Roseville go grocery shopping and there are only two cashiers at the checkout line. Somebody didn't do what they were supposed to do. I don't like waiting. It's not my thing. And don't you sit out there and look at me like I'm the only one. You don't like waiting either. Tell the truth. We are, are not a society that is good at waiting. We're not gifted in that area which is super ironic because while we're a society that's not good at waiting, we're also a society that loves anticipation. We love anticipation. We love waiting for, for things that excite us, right? It's why we do silly little things like wrap Christmas gifts, which is it's really quite silly if you think about it. You spend all this money on all this extra tissue and wrapping and bows that we're just going to throw away. Just give me the gift. But we like to wrap our Christmas gifts because it adds to the anticipation of opening the gift. And it feels good to have something to look forward to. It feels good to know that just on the other side of, of that wrapping paper, just on the other side of that thing is an opportunity for us to have something exciting. So if you're like me, if you make exciting plans for the evening, boy, you spend the whole day thinking about them. I have a hard time being present in the moment if I have something exciting to do in the evening. And, and there are certain times of year, uh, certain seasons, holiday seasons, if, if you're into sports, certain sports seasons that we really look forward to. And so the days and the weeks and the months leading up to that are just full of anticipation and expectation, even in just like the regular work week, right? What, what do we look most forward to? The weekends, correct. I see I got some people in the house today, glory. <laughs> Glory to God. Heather was talking about how this weekend marks the first weekend in a season called Advent. And Advent is from today to Christmas Eve. And Advent is a time of preparation and anticipation. Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, right? Which means coming or arrival. 
And during this season of Advent, Christians from all over the world for centuries now have spent this, this time doing two different things. First, they, they've spent this time preparing to celebrate Christmas. And what is Christmas? Christmas is Christ's first Advent, his first coming. And in preparing ourselves for the celebration of Christmas and of Christ's coming, we open ourselves up to, to the possibility of a new and deeper experience with our Savior. The second thing that Christians have always done during this season is that we have lived with a heightened sense of anticipation for Christ's second advent, his second coming, when he will return and he'll make all things new. And each week of Advent, as Heather was sharing with us, has a different theme, and these themes are hope, peace, joy, and love. Now, Bridgeway has celebrated the season of Advent as a church for a number of years now, and we do this by writing Advent devotionals and Advent guides and by lighting the Advent candles and even creating the experience Advent, which I hope you'll all come and experience with us. And we're going to continue doing that this year. But we also decided that this year we wanted to devote our weekend teachings to unpacking those themes of hope and joy and peace and love. And I don't know about you, but with the crazy year that I've had, I could use a little more hope in my life a little more hope in, in, in the country, a little more hope in society, a little more hope in other people. I could use a little more love. I could use a little more love in my, my familial relationships with my neighbors. I could use a little more joy, joy just in my everyday life, just in, in doing the regular things. And I could use a little more peace. As somebody who struggles with depression, I could use a little more peace in my heart and, and, and in my head. And uh, I think even more importantly, when we look at our anxious and angry world, we see a world that needs people to be full of hope and love and peace and joy. Your world needs you, believer, to be a bearer of hope and love and peace and joy. You are essential to the work, the good work that God is doing during this Advent season. And, and the good news is that we serve a God who longs to form us and shape us and mold us into a hopeful people and into a joyful people and into a peaceful people and into a loving people. And so I'm super excited just to have this opportunity to, to unpack the first theme of Advent, which is hope. Now, before I dig real deep into hope, I, I, I want to talk to you for a moment about why this season of Advent is such a gift. I think you'll agree with me that as a culture, we get really, really excited about Christmas. Yes? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about because some of y'all had your Christmas tree up and decorated before your Thanksgiving turkey was finished frying. Amen? We get really excited about Christmas. It's a trillion dollar industry. Isn't that crazy? Christmas by itself, a trillion dollar industry. And don't get me wrong, I'm for all of it. I, I like the lights, I like the traditions, I like the tree, I like the ornaments, I like the music, the gifts, all of it is fantastic. All of those Hallmark movies, go ahead and watch them. Listen, drink your eggnog. You may even want to put a little splash of brandy in it. I'm not telling you to drink, I'm just telling you what we do at my house. Whatever you do, and enjoy it. If you got little kids, maybe you're used to during this season watching the movie Elf 462 times a day. 
Maybe you're like me and you're going to eat 12 sugar cookies at one time. Okay, okay, I'm going to stop there. Maybe not 12, let's 10. We'll, we'll do moderation, right? Whatever you do, it's okay. The excitement around Christmas is great. I'm all for it. But here's the thing. Isn't it true that there's a lot of pressure that comes with this season of Advent, this Christmas season? There's a, there's a lot of pressure because what do those Hallmark movies and commercials, what are they telling you? They're telling you that all your dreams are going to come true. This season is going to be magical. You're going to get that Lexus for Christmas. And somehow you're going to have a good attitude about your spouse who's made that big expenditure without consulting you. Somehow the contentious relationship that you have with your in-laws, it's magically going to be perfect. Suddenly the, the behavior issues that your children have shown during this COVID season are going to magically go away. And what happens is we start to internalize these messages. We start to believe them, and then they come crashing up against this little thing called reality. And we realize that our lives are not a Hallmark movie. And for many of us, we end up walking away from this season disappointed. Or, or worse yet, not able to enjoy the season for what it is because we've been leaning so hard into what it isn't. Because we've come into this season with wildly unrealistic expectations. And what is that, family? We call that misplaced hope. And again, don't hear me saying that the lights are bad, that the gifts and the songs are bad. They're beautiful, particularly the sugar cookies. They're beautiful. But if we ask these things to fulfill us, they'll never be enough. They will always leave us wanting more. They will always leave us craving for more. But if we can understand that all this stuff, all of the trappings of the season that the culture tells us to get excited about, if we can understand that these are not the thing, but they're meant to point us to the thing, that these things are not worthy of our hope, but rather they are to point us to the one who is worthy of our hope, well, we might actually get to have the hopeful, joyful, peaceful, loving season that we so desperately need. And so what this season represents for us is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to anchor our hearts and our minds in the ultimate reality. It's an opportunity for us to prepare and to anticipate. It is an opportunity for us to prepare to celebrate the awesome reality that the God of the universe entered into human history as a baby in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, and to anticipate that not only will he come again, but he will unlock and is unlocking new opportunities for us to grow closer to him in this season, that his first and his second coming houses the fullness of hope and the fullness of joy and the fullness of peace and the fullness of love and whatever it else that you need in your individual lives, it is housed in the first and second coming of our Jesus. So if we're going to talk about hope, we have to talk about what the Bible is talking about when we talk about hope. We're a Bible-reading church, amen? I want you to hear me really clearly when I say this. 
Biblical hope is not wishing. I'm going to say that again, just in case there's somebody way in the back that didn't hear us, or maybe somebody online went to use the bathroom just at that moment. Biblical hope is not wishing. Oftentimes in our culture, we use the word hope as a synonym for wishing. We say things like, oh, I hope the weather clears up by Thursday. That sure would be nice. I, ooh, I, I just hope, I hope 2021 is better than 2020. If you're like me, you say, I hope I win that $2 million jackpot lottery. I'm just saying my bank account will be blessed by it. Glory to God. And, and then what do we say to somebody if they have unrealistic expectations? Don't get your hopes up. And listen, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with using hope in that matter. What I need you to understand is that it is not the way the biblical writers use the word hope. And similarly, hope is not optimism. There's an incredible Catholic theologian, Henry Nouwen, uh, and he describes optimism versus hope in this way. He writes this, he says, optimism and hope are radically different attitudes. He says, optimism is the expectation that things, the weather, human relationships, the economy, the political situation, and so on, will get better. But hope, is the trust that God will fulfill his promises to us in a way that leads us to true freedom. He says that the optimist speaks about concrete changes in the future, but the person of hope lives in the moment with the knowledge and the trust that all of life, your whole situation, is in good hands. Isn't that good news? That, that's good news. That, and again, there's nothing wrong with optimism. I like optimistic people. There is nothing worse than being in a planning meeting and you're trying to dream something big and you're sitting in a room full of pessimists. I like optimism. We need to be optimistic people, but I need you to understand that optimism and hope are different. Hope is so much more powerful than just optimism. The person of hope doesn't just look to the future and wish for the best. The, the person of hope lives in the moment with the knowledge and the trust that all of life is in good hands. The person of hope knows that even in the midst of uncertainty, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of pandemics, that we serve a God who will fulfill his promises in a way that brings us to true freedom. In fact, here's the blank if you're following along with us on the app. Jesus gives us real hope. Jesus gives us real hope. And so what I want to do just for a couple of more minutes, I want to take you to a really famous passage of prophecy in the Old Testament that talks about Jesus. And I want to show you some incredible truths about hope. And this is what I believe. If we can get these truths into our hearts and into our minds, I believe that not only will it transform the way we experience this Advent season, but also the way that we are navigating this time of stress and pain and struggle in this really weird moment in our history. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to look at one of the best-known prophecies about Jesus in all of Scripture. Let me give you a little bit of context as you're turning to it. At the end of Isaiah 8, 
things are not good. Israel has been rebelling against God and he's under their discipline. And so these aren't exactly the glory days of Israel, right? In fact, if you look at the last verse in chapter eight, it says this, and they will look on the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into the darkness. Now, doesn't that verse just warm your heart? Isn't that just a nice way to start, start the Christmas season, just warm and fuzzy? Slap that on your, your Christmas cards. See how many thank you cards you get back in the mail. This is, this is the situation that, that we're in as we enter into chapter 9 when God is about to shift things. Read with me Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made a glorious way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So Isaiah is speaking of this glorious new future for a place called Galilee. Question, Bible scholars, where did Jesus do the majority of his ministry? Galilee. So here's what you need to understand about Galilee. Galilee is having a rough time at this moment in history. See, Galilee is north of Jerusalem. And so that means when the invaders would show up and, and, and head toward Jerusalem to attack it, they had to pass through Galilee. And when they passed through Galilee, that meant Galilee was getting burned. Galilee was getting pillaged. Uh, Galilee was getting uh, murdered. Their children were getting harmed. Their businesses were getting burned down. Their resources were getting taken. And then... When the invaders would pass back through Galilee after attacking Jerusalem, well, they do it all again. And so Galilee didn't get a break. I want to encourage some people here tonight who would say, I'm in a season where thing after thing is going bad. I'm in a time in my life where it seems like every time I turn around, Something goes wrong. I, I try to stand up and catch my breath and something comes and knocks the wind out of me. I keep going through bad things. I want to talk to some people who are feeling discouraged because this was the reality of Galilee. And, and maybe it's your reality too. Listen, Galilee was not a nice place to live. Nobody woke up in the morning from the neighboring town to say, you know, we're going to move to Galilee today. I would imagine that they wouldn't even let their kids who had friends in Galilee go play with their friends in Galilee because it was not a nice place. It was dangerous. It was miserable. And for centuries, centuries, not one year, not a couple years, centuries, this is just how life was in Galilee. And yet, God, through the prophet Isaiah, says to them, and all of that is coming to an end. The place that had been the site of so much abject misery, he says to that place, you're about to witness the dawn of something amazing. I want to encourage you that maybe your place of abject misery, your place of pain and struggle and trial also gets to experience witnessing the dawn of something amazing, not through your Christmas decorations, not through your Christmas tree, but in and through the very real person of Jesus. 
Let's keep reading. Turn with me to verse 2. It says, The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, one of them, on them has the light shined. So this is God's promise to his people. He says, you have walked in darkness, but light is coming. And centuries later, uh, his good friend John would describe the, the birth of Jesus. He said it like this in John 1. He said, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then later, in the Gospel of John, Jesus himself would say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, that's real good news for some of us that have been walking in darkness. Because what it says is that we are the perfect candidates for seeing and experiencing the light of Jesus. And really, I mean, that, that's the thing about light, right? It's easy to take for granted in a brightly lit room. This candle is not making much of a difference in this room with all these lights. But if you really wanted it to matter, step into this room when it was dark. And in the same manner, isn't it true for us, right, that when everything is clicking, when everything is going well, when everything is smooth and hunky-dory in our lives, it's hard for us to remember just how much we need Jesus. Oh, but when things start going wrong, we remember very quickly how much we need Jesus. And sometimes it takes moments of walking through darkness for us to become crystal clear on the need for recentering ourselves around the light of our Savior Jesus. And Isaiah, God is saying to his people, this darkness you have walked through is coming to an end. Light is shining on you. And just like light is most noticeable in the midst of darkness, light is really only useful to those of us who pay attention to it. If my back is turned to the light, then I'm still in darkness. But what that darkness does is it shows me my need for the light. I don't care who you are, where you're from, how much money you have, or who you voted for. We're walking through a dark time. And if you're anything like me, you are tired of hearing words like unprecedented and uncertain. These words are overused for sure, but they're not, they're not inaccurate. And perhaps now more than ever, when so many of our worldly lights have gone out, when, when so many things that we took for granted have been taken from us, when so many things that we thought would be solid and always and, and would be consistent in our life have been shaken at their foundations, perhaps now is a good time for us to remember that there is a light that shines when all else fades. There is a light that the darkness cannot overcome. So we need to not lose hope. Even though it feels like there's this deep darkness around our land, the light of Jesus is still shining. He is still present. He is still at work. Jesus doesn't take Christmas. He doesn't take vacations. He doesn't take naps. Jesus is still busy in our world. 
And because that is true, we can have hope. We can have trust in God who keeps his promises in a way that leads us to true freedom. Now, there are a few other elements of biblical hope that I want to touch on really quickly. I think we need to understand. And the first, the first element of biblical hope that I want us to really ground ourselves into is that hope does not ask us to deny that darkness exists. Too often, listen, in the Christian church, we over-spiritualize pain. We over-spiritualize suffering so much that we try to pretend like it doesn't exist. I think we, we believe that if we acknowledge that we're in pain, that somehow we're going to make God insecure. God is not insecure because you're in pain. Acknowledging that some things hurt does not make God upset. I don't think it's healthy to pretend that pain doesn't exist. In fact, I love that Isaiah 9 and 2 starts with an acknowledgement of darkness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That's what the text says. So understand that our faith does not ask us to deny the darkness around us. Pretending that darkness doesn't exist, that pain doesn't exist, is neither helpful nor is it healthy. To the contrary, our faith tells us that there are appropriate times for lament, for the crying out to God and saying, God, this thing hurts. I'm struggling with it. And I think certainly now is one of those times where it's appropriate. What hope does is it tells us that the one who is with us in pain is helping bring us through the pain. That's why that little itty bitty scripture, shortest one in the English Bible, Jesus wept, is so important because what it shows us is that our Savior said, I'm not going to protect myself from the pain of your experience. I'm going to enter into it with you. I will hurt with you. And hope says that there is one who comforts us as we lament. There is one who will not leave us or forsake us. Hope says that there is light that shines where? Into the darkness. The second thing that we need to understand about biblical hope, if we want to continue with kind of this light, dark metaphor, we need to understand that biblical hope requires us to choose where we're placing our focus. If I'm focused on the darkness, it's going to cause agitation, it's going to cause confusion, it's going to cause frustration. If I'm focused on the darkness, it's going to mess me up. We all have probably experienced that, that midnight run to the bathroom with the light still off. It's one thing to do it in your own house, but you ever been at somebody else's house and had to try to stumble through their house in the dark and find the, find the bathroom, we get nervous because it's terrifying. We start clapping and talking to Alexa and trying to find a light switch anywhere because we're so afraid we're going to step on a Lego or, or even worse, you ever hit your, your pinky toe on the, the bed frame. It'll make even the most devout Christian use some colorful language. Glory to God. <laughs> Darkness is disorienting. And it's scary. I mean, frankly, it's scary. And, and really, none of us are our best selves in moments of darkness. And this is why it's so important to understand biblical hope. This is why it is so critical for us in the moment that we're in, because we are facing a type of darkness that none of us has the experience to speak to. There's not a person alive who will say, oh, yeah, I remember when all that happened before. 
So there's darkness, and there's confusion, and there's uncertainty, and there's anxiety, and there's anger. And, and what can happen is we get so focused on all of that that we forget that there's still light shining. And what do we do? We lash out. We get angry. Cuss out the poor grocery store clerk because they didn't ran out of the cereal that you like. Blow up on your spouse, on your kids unnecessarily. And why? Because we have allowed the darkness to cause us to forget about the light. But our faith teaches us that light shines through the darkness and that darkness will not overcome it. So do we need to acknowledge that there is darkness? For sure. Do we need to uh, uh, lament the pain that the darkness causes in our life and cry out to the God of mercy and justice? For sure. But can we afford to let the darkness control us? No. Do we get to allow it to shape our behavior and how we treat people and how we engage with them? No. We have a reason for hope, and it's because God's light is still shining. So what would it look like in this Advent season if you were to ground yourself in the light and not the darkness? Maybe it's making a point to listen to, to our daily Advent devotional, listen to that every day. Maybe it's making a point to spend a little more time in prayer, a little more time in your text, reading your Bible, a little extra time with God. Maybe it's spending a little less time, this is for the millennials, on social media. But don't, don't, don't worry, older folks, I'm coming for you too. Maybe it's spending a little less time watching the news. Maybe it's time to turn that off and give yourself a break. Maybe it is investing a little more time in those meaningful relationships with folks that you love and that you can process the feelings you're experiencing with. Listen, you don't get to choose how much darkness there is in this world. Put that down. You don't get to control it. You don't get to control how people act, how they treat you, what they think, what they believe, what they want. You don't get to control any of that. But what you do get to control is where you place your focus. And the hope of Advent reminds us that even in the deepest, darkest places, there is light. If there could be light in an ancient town like Galilee, there can certainly be light here today at Bridgeway in Roseville and Rockland in Sacramento. There is light for us. The third thing that I need you to understand about biblical hope that I want to touch on, and then we'll finish out the passage of Isaiah, and I'll get out your way. I need you to understand that hope is not passive. The way we use hope in this kind of 21st century context is, is it sounds very passive. I hope the weather is nice on Thursday. Listen, unless you've got some sort of superpower that don't nobody know about, you're out here wishing for the weather just like the rest of us. And I can see how all of this, this talk about hope and understanding God's light still shines in the world. I, I can understand how that can sound really passive, but I need you to understand that nothing could be further from the truth. Hope 
is not passive. Biblical hope is not passive. It is active. It is living. It is breathing. It is moving. And we have to anchor our trust to Jesus, but not in a way that allows us just to sit back, kick up our feet, and wait for heaven. When we said we were believers... It meant that we accepted God's invitation to live as a certain kind of person, a hopeful person. That is a part of your mandate as a believer is to be a hopeful person. Yeah, I want you to be a nice person. I want you to be a good person. I want you to be a charitable person, but I need you to be a hopeful person as well. In the New Testament, uh, Peter wrote this letter to a group of Christians who were scattered all over Asia Minor, and uh, they were dealing with all sorts of persecution and hardship, the kind of stuff that we really, in today's context, we don't really know anything about the type of persecution that these folks were dealing with. And at the beginning of the letter, uh, he tells them, he says that they have been born again to a living hope. Notice what kind of hope it is, living, breathing, moving, active, living Hope, And he goes on to say that this hope can sustain them even as they face temporary suffering. Man, is that a word that we need to hear today? But then he goes on to say this. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, that, that's that acknowledgement of what's going on, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on grace. Notice he says, set it fully on grace. It doesn't say set it on your own skill set, set it on your money, set it on the candidate that you like. He says, set your hope fully on grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. Notice he didn't even say, set your hope fully on grace and then do nothing. He said, prepare your minds for action. In other words, set your hope on Christ and then get ready to do something. Peter said, let your hope get you active. Christian hope, biblical hope, is not passive. It is formational. When we fix our eyes on our Jesus, when we fix our eyes on the light of the world, and we anchor ourselves in hope, that he will one day return, that forms us. That gives us hope that sustains us even as we walk through the pain and the struggle and, and, and the issues of life. That centers us so that we are not completely at the mercy of fear and anger and all of the other emotions that come, come to us when we're going through hard times. It forms us into people who are anchored, unmoving, relentlessly hopeful in Jesus. I may be hurting, but I'm hopeful. I may be struggling, but I'm hopeful. I may be wrestling with depression, but I'm hopeful. I may be sick in my body, but I'm hopeful. My marriage may have some issues, but I'm hopeful. My children may be misbehaving, but I'm hopeful. The, 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 the hymnal writers would say, great is thy faithfulness unto me. That's why I'm hopeful. They would say, blessed assurance, because I'm hopeful. And so I want to ask you, what does it look like in your life to hold on to hope. What does it look like? What does it, what does it look like to allow the hope that you have in Christ to prepare you to take action? 
How, how can the hope that you have in Christ's presence with you now and his promise to return impact the way you approach this season? How can the light of hope that shines through the darkness of fear and anxiety motivate you? Our darkness is different than the darkness that was occurring in Isaiah, but we can enter into this Advent season as people who have walked through the darkness, but have also seen the great light. I, I want to get just to the, the best part of this text, which is really in verse 6 and 7, but, but meet me at verse 3, which says, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. Isaiah says the people will enjoy all of the good things that come with peace and victory. He says there's going to be joy in Galilee. And I won't get too far into joy because joy is uh, week three and, and I, I encourage you to come back and, and hear Pastor Lance talk about joy. But the text tells us for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. There is a promise here that God is going to break the power of injustice. That oppression and injustice cannot stand against the might of Jesus. He says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Just real quick, I want you to try to put yourselves in the shoes of the folks who were reading this. I told you what it was like to live in Galilee. These were people who were worn out by war. Some of us are worn out by war. War in our marriages, war in our houses, war in our country. We are worn out by it. All the people in Galilee knew of was war and conflict. And in this verse, Isaiah is saying that there will be no need for the instruments of war. Can you imagine a time where there will be no need for the instruments of war. Where we, won't, we won't be arguing over gun laws anymore because we won't need guns. Won't that be an exciting time for us? It, it almost sounds too good to be true. The promises Isaiah makes. And so the readers ask themselves, how will God accomplish this in my life? And maybe there are some things that you're dealing with, some darkness in your life, and you would say, Pastor, I believe in God, but I'm wondering how God is going to accomplish this in my life. How is God going to restore my family? How is God going to restore my marriage? How is God going to fix the things that I'm dealing with? How is God going to set me free from addiction to porn and sex and, and affirmation and alcohol and drugs? How is God going to accomplish these things in my life? And Isaiah's response to that is very simply this. He said, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Given, not bartered for, not traded, not sold, not that you have to earn, given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his home shall be called, his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is the object of our hope. He is our wonderful counselor. And that means that we can have complete faith in his wisdom and leadership. He is our mighty God. And that means that he is greater than anything we can face, anything we're facing, anything that you're going to face tomorrow before the problem hits you, your God had the solution. And he is our prince of peace. Verse 7 says, of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And that's how, that's how Isaiah concludes the prophecy. He concludes it with the promise of the Messiah of the Savior who is to come, who will extend his rule all the way from Israel, all the way right here in Roseville, California. Isaiah promises that his reign will continue forevermore, past the violent history of Galilee, past the coronavirus, past the crashing economy, past a country full of folks who don't get along well. He's saying that the Messiah will pass all of that up so we can have hope. We can have hope that starts right now. Why? Because the prophecy came true. Came true in the person of Jesus, who is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He came as a baby. He lived as a perfect man. He died as a perfect savior, he was resurrected on the third day. He ascended into heaven. And here's the real good news. He took you with him. So that means that we can enjoy all of the fun of this season, even the sugar cookies, although you got to get on the treadmill the next day. We can crank out those Christmas carols. We can drink our hot cocoa. You can do all the shopping that your budget can afford. But I need you to remember that all of that points to the Savior. And we can recognize that even as we live in a painful time, we don't have to minimize it. We don't have to deny it. But we can live in it with a sense of hope that we can overcome anything that this world has to throw at us because of Jesus. Can you imagine what a difference it would make if every single one of us looked at these next four weeks and said, I'm going to anchor myself in hope. I'm going to let hope guide all of my interactions and all of my behavior and all of my thoughts and all of my deeds in this Advent season. I think if we did that, we might see some light shining. We might even be able to bring light into some dark places. Listen, this world doesn't need optimism. It needs hope, real hope. And that's what Jesus brings. So let's commit to anchoring ourselves into hope 
And then y'all, let's give it away. Let's just give it away promiscuous. Let's just, let's just give out hope everywhere we can. Hope in Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for the hope that we find in your son, Jesus, and in Jesus alone. Great God, in the days and in the weeks to come, remind us over and over and over and over again where we are to place our hope and then equip us to give that away to the nations. Equip us to be ambassadors of your hope. God, I pray a blessing on this Advent season for every family, every person listening that you would bless us this Christmas to be centered on you. We love you, great God in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.